Well, good morning, everybody. A couple introductory notes before we get started. First, uh, this is the last, I'll call, I was going to say the last time you hear this announcement. Let me up it. This is the last warning to uh, sign up for our serve day, which is coming up this Saturday in your handout. There is a serve insert, and you can either fill that out, put it out in the offering baskets, or there's a QR code. You can go online or later today, go to svccchurch.com, go to events, and you'll see it's the first thing that pops up. Serve day is a time where we uh, take time to serve in our community. There's various projects that you could sign up for, and it's a way for us as a church to let our community know we're here, we care, we love them, and we're doing so in Jesus' name. Uh, There's family projects available, so if you want to bring the kids, but it's an incredibly important thing. It's a great witness to our community. Several years ago, because of activity like that and others, this church received Nonprofit of the Year Award from the Gilray Chamber of Commerce. So these types of things aren't just a quick little event on the side. They're important. We're demonstrating to the community that we're here and we love them and we do so in Jesus' name. So this is the last Sunday for that announcement. That's why it's kind of in the handout. You're getting the special announcement right now, so... Make sure to sign up for that. Give it some attention. There's also uh, a serve booth if you have any questions on the way out. You can just take a right, and then by the stairs, you'll see that serve booth there. Okay, that's number one. Number two, uh, I'd like to thank everyone for uh, the prayers. Many of you told me for the prayers. uh, For my family, my wife and I, we we did have our fifth child the Wednesday before last. Um, Baby boy named Emeth, the Hebrew word for truth. And so uh, I really, really uh, do want you to know how much we, we appreciate the prayers. Continue them. Uh, we appreciate them and ongoing. It, it just really means a lot. And as I've grown in ministry, um, I value that all the more when someone tells me, hey, we're praying for your family. We're praying for your kids. We're praying for your children. Like that, that, that means more and more every single day. Like pray for my family, my kids, all of that. So thank you for that. I really do appreciate it. Um, Three, we are starting a new series called Analog Christian, Seeking the Abundant Life in the Digital Age. It's a short, another short break from our time through the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been with us for a long time, you know we're in part 127 of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're gonna take a short break. This is just a few weeks to dive into this, and then we'll get back to finish out the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, heads up, with this, um, this is gonna be a little bit different of a series than usual. Normally, we just kind of pick a book of the Bible and go through it verse by verse, but oftentimes, we'll take a break and do series like this. And this series is going to be extremely practical, like extremely practical, way more than usual. And we're gonna be dealing with the issue of technology. We all... in like a matter of a few decades, woke up to a world that's fundamentally different than the world that was around yesterday. Like it's just radically different in so many ways. And so the question for the Christian is, how do I live in the digital age? How do I live in the digital world? This title is taken from a book that my friend wrote, Jay Kim. And so some of the principles and ideas are from that, but also from a host of other books and resources that I'll mention along the way for further research. Now, here's, here's the problem when we talk about living as a Christian in the digital age. There isn't a section of the Bible where you open up to and find what the Bible has to say about the internet. Like, how many social media accounts do I have? Well, we turn to Paul's epistle to the church in the Silicon Valley and we read these valuable life lessons. Like, it doesn't exist. And so, in order to live in the digital age as a faithful Christian, we have to exercise something called chokmah. Chokmah is the Hebrew word for wisdom. 
And wisdom in, is necessary when you don't have like a black and white statement or a this is wrong and this is right statement. Wisdom deals with this. Chokmah is looking at the world and seeing how it operates and saying, how do I live well in light of that? This is how the world works. How do I live well in light of it? Or another way to say it would be, um, how did God design the world? How did God design the world to operate and how do I live well within the framework of that design? Now, the Bible has all kinds of wisdom literature, books dealing with wisdom. And what you have to understand, again, is that it's not, wisdom doesn't say, this is wrong and this is right. Sometimes it gives you a general idea on how to live well in light of the way the world operates. So I'll give you an example. In the Proverbs, which is filled with wisdom sayings, it says that if you honor your mother and father, then you'll live a long life. Okay, that looks at the world and sees the way God designed it and says, yes, honoring your mother and father, living in healthy relationships with your parents and in healthy communities generally leads to a longer life. And you know that to be true because if family units are healthy, communities are healthy, and there's more healthy boundaries and things in place, so generally it will go well for you in life if you have healthy relationships with your parents. However, you can love and honor your parents and still die young in a car accident. So wisdom doesn't say, honor your parents and you have a promise from God, thank you, that, there's five kids, man, you know, sleep. <laughs> he, he even opened it for me, like I'm like a weak man up here, come on, man. It's like, here you go, pastor. So, um, it's not, wisdom literature doesn't promise you that if you do ABC, you get XYZ. Do you follow this? But it's saying that in order to live well, this is how to do it. It's not a universal promise. So then what we have to do is say, what is the wisdom of the Bible teaching us in how we engage as Christians in the digital era, in the digital age? Now, the foundation for today, which is going to be focused a lot on family units, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is uh, the central Bible verse for Hebrew theology and for religious Jews today. Like, this is it. There is one God, and you shall love him with the sum total of your being. And it's also, by extension, the central verse for us, because when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of the commandments, he said this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and love him with the sum total of your being. Relevant for us today is what comes immediately after. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So you feel the repetition of that. It's like, you need to be thinking about the law and commands and wisdom in the scriptures, the, the commands that come from God. You should be thinking about them all the time. When you wake up, when you go to bed, uh, write them on your doorpost so that when you go outside, when you go to work, you're reminded of them. And then when you come back into the home, you're reminded of them. It's, it's this idea that the, the ways of God should be talked about consistently and continually all throughout your day and your life, which touches on this important issue of integration. 
The concept is that your faith needs to be integrated into every component of your life. Now that may sound obvious, but what you need to know is that modern Americans, we're not good at this. What we typically do is we compartmentalize things and we end up compartmentalizing the faith so that uh, we have Sundays where we go to church and learn some Bible lessons, but then we have soccer over here and karate over here, and then you have your education here and you have some activities over here. What Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5, 6, and 7 was telling us was that the law of God, the ways of God, the wisdom of God should be integrated into every layer of our life. So there's no faith box or Christian box. Our faith is integrated at every single level. Parents, we are to teach our children these things diligently, consistently, and continually. Now, for today... um, there's going to be um, a lot of talk specifically about parenting, but I want you to know that even if you don't have children, your children are gone, you got grandkids, uh, if you're single, if you're newly married and one day you'll have kids, there will be chokmah for every single person in this room because a lot of this stuff applies to us as individuals. And even if we don't have children directly in our home, maybe we, know we have nieces, nephews, um, we have grandkids, so this stuff will be important and relevant for everybody at different, different levels. Now, I also want to say that it's important to note, again, that Hokmah does not guarantee something. It doesn't mean if you do X, Y, and Z, then this will automatically occur. Let me tell you what I mean. LifeWay Research several years ago did some, some research on what keeps kids in the faith? In other words, if you raise your child a Christian, what are the major things you could do to make sure they're a Christian as an adult? So how do you raise your children so that they don't just remain in the faith as children, but they go on to adulthood to be Christians? Here's where the, the number one factors. One, you read the Bible with them in the home. Two, you go to church together and you pray together. On top of that, you worship together. So if we were to find the thread in that, there was a key word, together. You're going to church together, you're praying together, you're reading the Bible together, you're serving together. So that it's not merely an activity that, oh, we, we go to church on Sundays, and then the rest of our life is divorced from that activity. That faith is integrated in the household at every level. Now, Hokmah says, you should do those things if you want to live well in God's world, do all of those things. And it will increase the chances, statistically, that your child remains in the faith in adulthood. However, it doesn't promise it. So you can do all of those things and still have a child that walks away from the faith. And I say that because there's gonna be a, there's gonna be a lot of wisdom and I don't want anyone to look at that and think, oh, I failed or I didn't do this right. Okay, so you can do things exactly right and still have someone walk away from the faith. Additionally, there's some of you, so so that's encouragement to one type of parent. On the other side, some humility. It's like some of you are like, man, all of my kids know the Lord, they love the Lord, they're just doing so great, they're so well-rounded and perfect. And it's like, man, that's because the Lord blessed you and was gracious, because you hardly did anything right. The only thing you contributed to them was giving them a greater testimony of all that they overcame. So. So you guys understand this, like nothing guarantees, but we're gonna look at it from the the approach of Chokmah, this wisdom. 
Now, the number one thing that's fundamentally changed everything, this has changed everything, is technology. We do not live in the same world that existed 100 years ago. Like, it's radically different. I mean, just, you can just go back a few decades, a few decades, and you will encounter something like this, which was awesome at its time. (laughs) So, this isn't just like a normal floppy disk. This is the super floppy disk. This is the one that had 1.44 megabytes of storage. This is just decades ago. And some of you in this room, everyone's at different ages, you remember this and you were like, you came home and you're like, babe, I got one of the 1.44s. Do you know what's on here? I, this thing stored a whole picture. It's got a picture on it. And one text document. Can you believe that? Now, to put this in perspective, in my pocket is my phone, which is 256 gigabytes, which roughly says that this phone has, give or take, 197,000 plus floppy disks just on it. This is decades, just a few decades, right? It's fundamentally changing. Okay, remember this? (laughs) Who had one of these? Oh man, a lot of shady business going on in your past. You probably got a great testimony. Great testimony what the Lord's done in your life, man. Uh, This is a little bit harder to recognize. This was the Sony Betamax. Um, So you can't read it, but real tiny, it says what it could do. And this is what it could do, okay? Um, the The whole gimmick was... We'll record something that comes on your television. However, let's say there's a situation where there's two TV shows that you want to watch. At 8 o'clock on Channel 2, there's your favorite show, but your second favorite show is on Channel 4 at 8 o'clock, and you have to choose. You can't, it's like, what are you going to do? What this device did was let you watch what was on Channel 2 and set this R2-D2 thing to <laughs> record what was on Channel 4 simultaneously. And it was marketed as the next thing. And for some of you who are around, you're like, no, dude, that really was the next thing. I saved my life. I told myself, if I got that, man, how much better my life would be. For some of you more in my age group, uh, the cassette tape, right? So um, some of you owe your marriage to the cassette because... You wooed your your spouse this way because um, what you did is you listened to roughly like 400 hours of the radio and you didn't need to hear every song on the radio, but there was like 10 particular love songs that communicated far better than what you could ever do in words, your love for your special someone. So you waited and waited and then you boom, hit record when the jam came on. And then you filled this device up. You filled this device up. I mean, it had, it was... The power was not infinite, but it approached infinity in that the amount of songs that this thing could store and then be communicated to your loved one. I mean, you gave your loved one 10 love songs, 10 love songs, the power of the storage on this device, you know, then it was all set in stone. I never know you felt this way about me. (laughs) Then you got married. 
Then came the CD, and this is sort of, my era is like when I was little, there was the cassettes, and I remember when CDs came out, because uh, part of the big issue that, that my generation had to deal with with CDs is you got to walk like a disc man. <laughs> but the problem was, only the expensive ones came with something called like 20-second anti-skip technology. So some of you have no clue what I'm talking about, but basically, if you move too fast, the CD would skip in your pocket. <laughs> and it, 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 So like, unless you had some nice parents, you walk like, (laughs) like this. But CDs were great. For those of you who are like audio nerds, you know CDs are great. The audio coming out of a CD is is better than your MP3. It's great, okay. But the game has changed. Now, uh, some of you remember these. This is a, uh, a phone, I know there's some of you here who you don't know about this. You, you, the only reason why you know it is you recognize it from your school field trip to the Museum of Natural History where they taught you about this stuff. Um, so to call someone, you had to put your finger in this ring dial and you'd rotate them. The problem is you had to like, how many times did you mess up? You know, because it's like, oh, I just got to remember. Four, five, four, six, two, da, da, da. And then you get to like the sixth digit did I, already, did I already do that one? <laughs> Let's try again. You know. So here's the, here's the interesting thing, though, is the technology moves so fast, and depending upon where you're at, like your age, you're interacting. Everyone in this room is interacting with this stuff. For some of you, this still feels like that was just yesterday. That, I remember when that was a new technology, that type of phone. And there's some of you who have, like, no clue. If you're Gen Z, it's like, I don't even know what that thing is. And so we all come at different places and that's the beauty of approaching it as a church family. I mean, some of you are like, so my father-in-law, Jerry, he grew up at a time where he still had to send smoke signals to his mom, (laughs) letting him know when he come home for dinner. Be home at 6 p.m., mom. Okay. Okay, now... What I'd like to do is just show you how one piece of technology, this type of phone, and where, where we're at now has fundamentally changed, like on the, the most basic of levels. So this is a phone, by the way, for the young people. Uh, let me take you back in time, and I want, you, I want you to remember the time that this was the phone in the house, and typically it was the only phone in the house. Okay, so how does that, how, did, how, how was life fundamentally different with this type of phone? Well, let's say you have a 16-year-old daughter and a a boy calls because he wants to talk, you know? Implicit in in the call, there there needs an approval from mom and dad because mom or dad goes to the phone, yeah, who is it? Oh, it's, it's Timmy, is Sarah there? So in order to give Sarah the phone to talk to Timmy, like embedded in the activity is an approval. You know, that, that changes things. Because like, ring, 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 yeah, hello. Oh, it's, it's, it's Sarah there. Who is it? Oh, it's Tim, Tim from school. She don't live here no more, man. <laughs> Wrong number. And let me just give you a heads up. If you know what's best, you ain't going to be calling again. Now, let's say you, you allowed that phone call. There was still an approval. And then on top of the approval of that phone call... There wasn't such thing as like ultimate privacy because the daughter was then within the parameters of the length of that cord. 
And so for those of you who that was the era when you were in high school or college and you were dating, you know that like you got that phone and you like went all the way around to the kitchen and then you try to warp where there was like your door and you did your best. You kind of closed the door and you're right there just with like, no, I love you more. No, you say goodbye. But mom or dad could just, you you know, we follow the cord. Hey, I'm listening. I thought I told you, Timmy. So follow this. The convert built into the activity was the approval of mom and dad and everything was public. There wasn't a privacy taking place. So if something was wrong or you see your daughter or son's tone change, you can immediately follow up and say, what's going on? You were not met with a locked door and a cellular phone that's completely isolated from mom and dad. That's fundamentally changed romantic relationships for teenagers in significant ways. Significant ways. What do we have now? We've got a supercomputer in our pockets. And by the age of 10, 25% of children will have a cell phone. By the age of 12, 75%. By the time you get to 15, 95% of people have cell phones. Like, this is a different world. It's a different world. And so what I want to do briefly is go over like a, a quick list of 10 things. That, that's hokma. Some of you are going to like agree some of you are going to say, hey, that's pushing it too far. Some of you are going to be like, man, this is, this is heavy. And some of you are going to be like, Isaac, are you like Amish type of, type of thing? Okay, so Hokmah doesn't, there's not going to be like being on the internet for 45 minutes, that's when it becomes sin. That's not the way Hokmah works. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the world that God made. We're going to look at the scriptures and we're going to say, how can we best live well in that world? And so some of you are going to like some of this stuff. Some of you, it's, it's going to be difficult. But be examining each one of these things. And again, majority of them will be first and foremost focused on kind of parenting, but they, they truly apply to every single, single person. Okay, 10 things how to live well, how to live with chokmah in the digital age. First, most controversial one. Mm, so if you guys get upset, it's the first one, and then everything else can be downhill. Okay, passwords. I should not have a device that's password protected from my wife. She has access to everything, and I have access to everything. You say, well, why is that? Because I I belong to her. I don't belong to myself, and she belongs to me. You might say, Pastor, where's that from? You belong to her. She belongs to you. It's from the Bible. It's Paul the Apostle. Now, quick clarification there are many situations in where there's an unhealthy relationship. There's um, obsession, possession, controlling behavior, dysfunctional behavior, abuse, all kinds of things that make exceptions to this rule. Um, that's why it's called chokmah, it's wisdom. It's not universally true and like has to be implemented in every single situation. But generally speaking, in a healthy marriage, I don't have anything that I'm trying to compartmentalize away from my spouse. You know that. I don't care. Look at my browsing history. You know, go, you know it's going to say like different varieties of Western fence lizards. You're going to look and it's going to be boring. It's going to be like my husband just is looking at blue belly lizards and the different types they are. Go 
ahead, man, I don't care. So I realize everyone comes with different family backgrounds, different levels of privacy, but in general, this isn't, it's not a universal, use chokmah, use your own wisdom, there's different situations. In general, you want to be at a place where things are healthy enough, communication is there, where I don't, there's no reason to password protect my iPad from my wife. It's, it's unnecessary. Of course she can have that. I, I don't belong to myself. I belong to my wife, and she belongs to me. And our culture is so backwards that statements like that, what do you mean you belong to? I belong to her. We belong to each other. So that's for, for married couples. Now for parents. Uh, your child has grown up in a world where they have been convinced that they have an inalienable right from God himself to have privacy with their devices apart from mom and dad. So if you try to be like, no, I, I should have the password to my teenager's iPad. What about my rights, mom and dad? They're God-given. They're from the scriptures. Like, what? Look at The internet has some good, good things about it. It's also filled with vile, evil, horrible things and predators and a whole lot of bad stuff. You don't let your child go into any domain that's filled with evil and predators alone. They're not allowed to do that alone. You go with them. So there's no world in which children or teenagers should have password-protected devices that mom and dad don't have access to. Now, for all of human history, this thing about privacy, look, you grew up in a one-room hut with the entire family, and it was a big family. You got six kids and mom and dad. There wasn't, I mean, God bless, we have bigger houses, like, great, but we didn't have, you couldn't, like, go with your digital device in your room and lock the door and have a wireless device that's completely divorced from the supervision of mom and dad. Now, uh, note, hokma, wisdom. On a lot of this stuff, you might automatically start feeling guilty because, oh, pastor, that sounds right, but we're, we've crossed that line. We're way too far. If I try to go in to my 17-year-old daughter's uh, house and just do everything you're saying, it's, you can't go to zero to 100. You have to exercise wisdom, hogma, in how to approach this stuff. Sometimes it's going to take baby steps. Sometimes it's going to take more aggressive steps. But generally speaking, you don't want your kids online unsupervised. It's, it's a very, very, very dark, dark place. Uh, third, oh, third note, to singles. You may be saying, hey, I'm not married, I don't have kids, none of this applies. Uh, if you're single, uh, if you have someone that you trust, it would be good to have one other person that functions like as an accountability person in your life that you could just say, you know my password, you can open up and look at my browsing history or whatever. It's not, not hidden. Just so that there's someone else in your life that's aware of that. Now, again, it needs to be a healthy relationship. It can't be with some person who's controlling every five minutes, looking at stuff. It's like, in a, in a normal context, in a healthy situation, you don't want to be able to go completely secret online. You're just, you just don't. Okay, number one. Number two, you need to have hard talks with your children earlier than you think you do, earlier than you think you ought to. So, you grew up in a world where you're looking back and going, oh, at the age of 13, I was first exposed to X, Y, Z, and I want to be wise and know that the world's so moving way faster, so I'm going to have that talk at 12. I'm going to move it up a year. 
you need to move it up further, a lot further. The world your kids are in is fundamentally different. The average age for first pornographic usage in this country is the age of 12, with 15% being the age of 10. So it's children looking at this stuff. And what they'll be exposed to is content that is pornography with some stats saying 85% with, a vi- with violent contact in that, Im- in that imagery. It's a different world. So you can't wait because let's say your kid has some questions. If you're not having those hard questions with them, they have a friend that will answer those questions for them. Their friend is Google and they can ask those hard questions. And do you want Google educating your children on those tough life important questions or do you want mom and dad, parent, mom or dad? So hard questions earlier than, hard hard talks earlier than you would normally think. Screens, Uh, you need to significantly reduce the amount of screen time that your child has. So children between the ages of eight and 12 on average are spending four to six hours a day in front of a screen. Teenagers on average are spending about nine hours in front of a screen every single day. Now for teenagers, that nine hours is partially because some of it's at school as well, but you're at a screen in school all the time. And then on top of that, you go home and then you're in front of a screen. Like you're spending a big chunk of your day in front of a screen. And there's a reason for that. You're biologically wired to pay attention to what's on that screen. Let me explain. So let's say you're camping, sitting in the lounge chair, everything's cool, you're just relaxing, the temperature's perfect, and you're looking at these big, beautiful trees at wherever you're camping. And then all of a sudden, a beautiful, bright bluebird flies from one tree to another. Your eyes automatically focus in on that and watch the bird. Why? Because you're biologically wired to see colors that stand out in fast movement. Watch this. <laughs> you know? You're made to, that's how we survive. That's how we hunt. Like that's, we're biologically wired for this. So what do the digital devices do? They use bright colors and a lot of movement. And so you'll see children, they're just, they're stuck. And some of you know this because this is, this is weird. Um, you put on like a Pixar movie for a child, right? And they are literally put in a trance. Like, okay, so three-year-olds, three-year-olds out of control. And four-year-olds out, it was like, man, I got to cook dinner. I got to do this, 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 and I can't have the kids. Out, so let me do the, let me do my magic trick. You guys want to watch a cartoon? You put it on, and what happens? Peace and harmony is restored in the household. There's no more noise. But then there's, there's like a trance, right? It's literally like a trance because you're going, baby girl, baby girl, it's dinner time. Baby girl, it's dinner time. <laughs> and the only way to break, you know how you break the trance. Hey, you stand in front of it and you break the magic spell. Okay, so hear me on this. There's nothing wrong with kids watching cartoons. Um, but we need to seriously limit the amount of screen time. And this is a word of warning for parents. Because it's not just that most Americans are allowing their kids to watch a healthy amount of cartoons. What we are doing 
is we are outsourcing our responsibility as mom and dad, and we're outsourcing it to digital devices. Because what those kids need more than that device is for mom and dad in the chaos to slow down and maybe read a book with them. And so, trust me, there's time when you got to use the emergency magic trick. Hey, I just got to put the thing on. But watch it, because you'll build a habit. And pretty soon, your habit will be outsourcing your responsibility as a parent to a digital device. And then they're glued and they're in trances. And I can tell you, we're not looking at this stuff in a healthy amount because there are countless, 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 countless children, probably the majority, who have hours and hours and hours and have hours of cartoons and Pixar movies memorized word for word. We're outsourcing our responsibility as parents. And I get it. I told you, I got five kids. Sometimes it's like, watch a cartoon, man. But you have to limit that. You limit it as much as possible. You know, there's this temptation to go, um, it's so cute, it's so awesome. Look, my, my two-year-old can already navigate an iPad. They understand, they understand the, the, the operating system. Look, he can open up pictures and scroll. Again, his brain was biologically wired to be attracted to bright colors and movement. So when there's a big bright button in the top right-hand corner, if you press and pictures pop up and they do this and see fast movement, of course they're going to do it. You know what would be better for them in their cognitive development? Not a two-dimensional flat surface with bright lights. Remember those, those like toys? It's a flat surface with shapes, and then you had these shapes, and rather than a two-dimensional flat surface, they were three-dimensional, and so the child had to figure out how to rotate the pyramid to put it in the triangle. So that spatiality, that rotation, that hand-eye, all of that coordination is doing an abundance more of good stuff for your child than swiping. So seriously reduce screen time. It's not good. Social media. Okay. Now, when all this stuff started hitting social media platforms, we didn't know any better. Like, I remember it was just like, oh, I, I want my kid to learn how to go on the internet and, and use computers, and oh, there's this, cool, there's this cool new thing called MySpace. Why would I not let my kid go to MySpace? All of his friends are there. It's cool. The guy who made it is a legit man. He friends everybody. His name's Tom. Tom, like, is nice to everybody on Facebook. This is great, man. Look, he even has, has, has his uncle in his top eight type of thing. Okay. So, in a sense, we didn't know. Now we know, the research is abundantly clear. This stuff is making us miserable. It's making us miserable. I wanna show you some, some stats. Okay, it's hard to read, but I'll read it for you. This is a 10-year trend description. Uh, on the right, you see on the top, uh, the female line, and on the bottom, you see uh, boys. This is the percentage of female and male students who experience persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness, measured from 2011 to 2021. So from 2011 to 2021, you see the stats go from, for girls from 36 to 57%. That's not feeling a little bad. This was this, the, quest, the, the stat, is persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. The majority of our young women are experiencing persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. Now that started at 2011, uh, interesting to note that Instagram was birthed quarter four of 2010. 
On top of that, you can look at 2011 at that 36% rate and look at the stats in the research and show that it got up to 36% after the event invention of the iPhone and Facebook. Now, you can say, well, um, there's other reasons for that increase in this stuff. And that's true. There's, it's always multifaceted. There's multiple layers. But there is now an insurmountable amount of evidence that says social media is making our young people depressed, anxious, and miserable. For young boys, it went up from 21 to 29%. This deals with uh, U.S. anxiety. And there's, there's four different lines, blue, red, orange, and green. On the top, blue, you have Gen Z. Then red is millennials, orange is Gen X, and green is boomer. So from 2008 to 2018, if you look at Gen Z in that blue line, you saw a 92% increase in anxiety of people say, saying they, they have anxiety. A 92% increase in that 10-year period. So it, 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 it affected Gen Z significantly, but it also affected my generation, millennials. They had a 62% increase. Gen X had an 18% increase. You know who was not affected by this at all? Baby boomers. They actually got 7% happier. <laughs> now, there's, there's like a reason for this. Like, cause so if you're, if you're a millennial, you're Gen Z, You've seen your mom, they're on Facebook because they ain't on TikTok, they're on Facebook. And um, like your mom posts something and you as a young person, you're 17 years ago, mom, you can't post that on Facebook. That's ridiculous. You know, people, everyone sees that. Uh, Uncle Bob will see that, man. You can't be posting that. And then what, how does a baby boomer respond? I don't care what they say. I don't care what they think. Mm-hmm. You care? I'll tag Uncle Bob. What up? I don't care. Young people in the room, because of technology, social media, et cetera, you have been biologically now wired, like neurologically wired to seek approval in the digital domains. The likes, the retweets, the hearts, they give you a hit and they're wiring your brain to seek the approval of others. Your brain is being hardwired for the approval of other people, people that you may not even know in real life. And so... For the boomer who wasn't raised in that environment in their teenage years, kind of the cool thing was to be the, you know, Fonzie was my hero, man, from happy days. He didn't care what the Cunninghams thought, man. I'm just throwing out that knowledge so I get respect from the boomer crowd that I, you know. Know about those shows. Welcome back, Carter. Happy days. Okay, so it's, the, the evidence is overwhelming at this point. Social media is not good for young people. Now, Hokma, some of you go, I've already gone past that. My kids are on it. You need to take baby steps to limit it, reduce it, or find a way to end it. This stuff, okay. Some of you are going to say, this is just a scare tactic, Isaac. This is a scare tactic. I am trying to scare you. Scare tactics are good sometimes. This stuff is poison to your children's soul. It's especially pronounced for young women. It messes with them on significant levels. You can't underestimate this. We didn't know better 10 years ago. The research is insurmountable at this point. 
It's making us more anxious, miserable. There's greater suicidal ideation. And we can see the direct relationship with this in technology. So, wage war in your household over this stuff. I'm not going to tell you, like, what ages does it become appropriate? Can my 16-year-old, can my 15-year-old? All I'll say is however old you think is safe and good, it's probably after that. It's probably after that. It's not good. Okay, that was the, um, the hardest of this stuff. Now the majority of these things are going to be positive, practical. There's a book uh, by Sherry Turkle. It's called Reclaiming Conversation. And she documents how meaningful conversation can't, doesn't usually take place up until you're, you're talking with someone for seven minutes. So before meaningful conversation can happen in your family, you usually need to be talking for about seven minutes. And you know this to be true, like in the majority of your interactions, like you go over to someone's house, hey, oh yeah, you know, how's, how's the family doing? You guys still doing karate? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Bob, there's a reason why I came over here to talk to you. We don't like your dog. In fact, in my home, we don't even call it a dog. We call it the rat. Um, so what, is, what does this seven-minute mark mean for us? It means that meaningful conversation with your spouse, with your children, with grandparents, isn't taking place till around the seven-minute mark. Uh, do you know what interrupts that seven minutes every time? The notifications, the text messages, the, the dings, the updates. It resets the clock. And you go, oh man, I'm dealing with X, Y, Z. It's dis- Have you noticed there's less meaningful conversation? Have you noticed as a culture, as a whole, we don't even know how to have meaningful conversation? It's been significantly reduced. And so it's not like the seven minute, it's not like, okay, set a timer on your phone for seven minutes. It's, it's a general principle. Again, wisdom, Pokemon. So you need to have spaces and spheres and domains where you will be uninterrupted for at least seven minutes. So on car rides, that can happen. It won't happen if everyone's just isolated looking at their own digital device. You could turn car rides into significant, meaningful times of conversation with your family. Or you could just get to the next location. Okay, dinner. Um, Do your best to have dinner as a family around a table every night. Now, again, there's going to be exceptions. It's like this night we have this, so we all can't eat together. But in general, make it a top priority to eat dinner together as a family around a table. This will do wonders. And also, you probably, depending upon where you're at in, in this situation, maybe your kids are all on digital devices, they're on social media, whatever it may be, you may actually to implement a rule where at dinner time, everyone takes out their digital device and they put it in this basket. And that basket will become the enemy for a long time. But we don't bring this stuff to the dinner table because we're not eating like this. We're not eating like that. We're going to eat facing each other. We're going to look at each other. We're going to have conversation. Do your best to extend this. Don't make it a time where it's like, do whoever can eat the fastest, and then can I be dismissed? Go. No. We're going to be slow. We're going to spend time together every day. We're going to pray together. Put the digital devices in a basket, and they don't come out till after dinner. Music. Okay, this is going to be weird. 
uh, do your best to sing together as a family. Now again, uh, some of you are gonna go, bro, I have a 15-year-old, an 18-year-old, 12-year-old. If I just go like, if I come home, yeah, sermon was good, so tonight we're doing family song time type of thing. It ain't gonna happen. So uh, I'm speaking to, specifically speaking here to people who don't have children yet, uh, maybe grandparents and maybe uh, couples who have young children. When kids are little, they love to sing and dance. Take that time to sing and to dance with them. There are, do you know how fast this phase is going to leave you? You have this much time where your little kids will love to sing and dance with you. This much time. And this room is filled with people who long for those days. They go, I miss those days. It was so special and it flew. I didn't know how fast it would fly by. I miss when I could just sing and dance and, and laugh over silly things. A toddler, they're clumsy walking. So when dad has even a basic dance move, it's awesome. You're never gonna get that again. You're gonna be lame really quick. But you could build that. And then also, check this out, is you can start integrating that in a way that maybe isn't as awkward. So for, for example, when we eat dinner together as a family, we sing the doxology. You could sing a 60-second song around the table with each other, and then we recite the Lord's Prayer together. Do you know that like, for the majority of human history, people had rhythms and habits where their families would sing together regularly? If you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, when they eat dinner, the father begins to sing a song, a blessing over the food, and the rest of the family joins in. It wasn't weird, but it had to start early. So, Hokmah, how can you begin integrating this? Some of you are past that point, I know. Your 17-year-old's gonna be like, Dad, I'm, we're not, I'm not dancing with you, dude. <laughs> how, but how can you value music? I'm telling you, if you can build a family that sings and prays together, you are setting a family up for success. Okay, next thing, space. And this has to deal with sort of the architecture and the layout of your major living spaces. And statistically, we know that's either the living room or the kitchen where people will gather. Set your space up to be a space that rewards creativity and relational engagement. And this idea comes from a book called TechWise Family by, by Andy Crouch. But you set up your space. It's like this is your family's temple. This is sacred space. You set it up and organize it in a way that it values the things that you want your family to value. Because right now, the way modern homes are built, they communicate what is most valuable. What does the architectural and space layout of 99.9% .9 of living rooms communicate as the most valuable thing in the room? The TV. The layout, the couches, the space is all designed in such a way to elevate this. If you're a realtor, you're in the real estate game, you know that new homes are built that way and the way they're modeled and structured as you preview them, you go in and right in the center point of the center wall, there's a hole with an HDMI cord hanging out. It comes pre-wired for the HDMI. So, again, maybe you're saying, what are you saying, Isaac, get rid of the TV? It could be a great idea. I don't think you need a TV in your living room. I don't. But you're going, okay, this is one of those areas where my hope ma is different than yours. Fair enough. Find a way to cover it. Get like an entertainment system or something that you can close it off. 
something that communicates this room isn't permanently designed to be centered here. So however you can navigate that in your house, that's up, that's up to you. Use wisdom and chokmah. But I'm telling you, our spaces are designed to value. It's like a temple, and we have certain items. What you want to do is set this space up to value creativity and relational engagement. So creativity, if you have young children, do your best to, to help them learn an instrument. And so you know I'm not completely anti-technology. You're saying, we can't afford lessons. None of us are musically inclined. My husband sounds horrible singing, so we can't do it. Where you can use technology to help is when you're, it's serving you, you're not serving it. So there's online video classes. Help your kids learn instruments. If you can't do music, set up something where your kids can paint and draw. And then when your kid gets done and he shows the painting, the thing they drew, hang it on the wall in the most important space in your living room. What we do is we put it on the fridge, which is good. That's a great step. But the fridge is not the focal center point in the architectural layout. Fill your walls with your kids' paintings. Let them know that their creativity is cherished. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And so you reward creativity and you reward relational engagement. Try to set up your couches in a way where people can look at each other. They're not all perfectly centered at the TV. Have the layout different. Have board games available. Play games. So chokmah in that. Rest, easy. Try to have an hour a day where you're not connected to technology. No screen time for at least an hour a day. And then once a week, if you can spend one day completely divorced from technology, great. And then if once a year you can say this whole week, I'm just unplugging from everything digital. See what you could do. See what happens. Lastly, read. Read together as a family. And again, this is harder to do the older your kids are. But if they're little... You can come down in the living room and on the couch uh, and read. Maybe mom or dad or the oldest brother or sister reads a book from The Hobbit, a, a chapter from The Hobbit. And then you take turns reading, but you're all together reading, listening to the same thing. Or if you can't do that, everyone's reading their own book, but then after you spend, it's, it's family reading time at 6.30, and then at 7, everyone sort of talks about what they read together. Do you know that the research is pretty clear on this, that if you can get your child reading and loving to read, they will do better pretty much in every measurable category. I'm talking about in school, with their emotional stability, with their emotional health, with their ability to deal with stress and difficulties and problems. If you can get your kids loving to read, it will set them up. And again, there's some of you who are feeling bad because you're like, I messed up on all of this stuff. You still today can make small changes using the chokmah that God has given you to begin to make small changes, and they will pay off. They will pay off. We need to learn to integrate our faith in every area of our lives. It can't just be on Sunday mornings. And if anything, the hope of this is that you begin to think about how your faith is integrated even into how your couches are laid out to how you hang up paintings in your house, to how you read, to how you sing, to how you allow social media in your house. You have to be thinking critical and critically and exercising chokmah in every last one of those areas. 
Because here's the thing. You are being shaped. You, your children are being shaped. Your grandchildren are being shaped. We are all being shaped by external forces. And we can either put things in place in our life that will shape us and conform us to the image of Jesus, or we can put things and practices in place that will shape and form us to the image of the world. It's not like there's this neutral thing where I could, you know, I don't have to do any of this good stuff that Isaac's talking about um, and everything will be okay. You are being shaped by external factors. They're shaping you, molding you. Those external factors are discipling your children, whether you like it or not. Just to live in the digital age, it's, that's what's occurring. So you have to decide, what are the things that's gonna shape me? What are the things that are gonna shape my family? Do I wanna be conformed to the image of Christ or conformed to the image of the world? Now, uh, I know there's always this, this kind of apprehension because, and I, and I feel it too, and I, I understand, but there's this apprehension that's like, man, okay, I got a couple little ones, we can actually put all of this stuff in place, but man, it's so like hardcore. It's so different. Like, I, I, I don't want my kids not to fit in. You know, I, I, everyone else that they're, they go to school, everyone else with their friends, they do all this stuff. They have access to all of this stuff. Do I really want my kid to be the only one that has never been on Instagram? I just don't want them to, to feel out of place. I want them to fit in. Okay. I understand that, but let me say it as crystal clear as, as I can. You are a Christian. You're not supposed to fit in. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be weird. We are a peculiar people. Our hope is not to fit in with the world, but that the world would see us and our families and our lives and say, I want some of that. That's different. You guys live differently. I want to be like this. And if you... You have to come come to grips with it because it's easy to, to be like, oh yeah, yeah, I wanna do this stuff for my kids. But if you don't do that yourself, if you're addicted to this stuff, if you're addicted to screens, you can't then implement it in your house. It's not gonna work. You don't want your kids looking up and saying mom and dad, saying you can't do this, you can't do this, and like this. The, the children today are, are the first generation who have to fight for the attention of their parents with a screen. They're fighting for your attention from a screen. So you have to decide, what do you want for yourself? What, what do you want to shape you? What do you want to shape your family? Now here's the thing. Take a good look at what Christ and the scriptures outline. Take a look at the world, okay? Do you see the madness that's going out? I don't want my kid to fit in with that. You don't want your children to fit in with everything that's going on. You want your kid to be strong, wise, has backbone, committed to do what's right, even when it costs them something. And they're not gonna do that unless you form and shape them with the right things. So commit yourself to love of Christ, not love of the world. We wanna be found faithful to God, not found seeking approval from the world from the world. Now, all of this comes down to Jesus because um, we all have a desire to be loved, to be liked, to be accepted. And again, a, a warning to, to you young people, like especially millennials and younger, my demographic and younger, you were raised to seek 
approval and likes in the digital world. Your just brain has been wired that way. Mine has, it's just the way we are. Um, and so there's a deep desire by all people, but especially young people to just, we want to, I don't want to be disliked. I don't want people to think I'm weird. I don't want people to think I'm crazy. And so I want to be accepted. I want to fit in. Here's the thing. You don't have to seek approval from the, word, from the world because you've already been accepted by Christ. You don't have to buy new things and purchase new things to feel good about yourself. You've already been purchased by the blood of the Son of God. And you don't have to seek out being liked because you are more deeply loved by the God of the universe than you could ever imagine. You are loved, you are accepted, you have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And you center your identity on that and you say, Lord, help me cling to this and help me live with wisdom in the world that you've made. And so every single person in this room, you have one homework assignment. You can't do everything on that list overnight, but you can at least say, what are one or two, three things that I can begin to implement in my life for myself or for my family? What are the small baby steps I could do? Don't feel overwhelmed with guilt if you're not doing any of this stuff. Say, what can I do now? What are the next steps for me, myself, my spouse, my marriage, whatever it may be, what are the small steps now? And you do so because I want to be loved. I want, I want to look like Christ. I don't want to look like the world. And I'm telling you, probably the biggest issue with all of this is so many of us, we, we would rather be accepted by the world than found faithful before Christ. That's at the heart of a lot of this. So, you're approved, you're accepted, you're loved far deeply, far more deeply than you can ever understand. So today, ask the Lord, what are the things, what are the small things I could start doing to live with wisdom in the world that you've made? Let's stand as we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, it's given for you. We remember what Christ did for us. And we look to that to inspire us to live faithfully in the present. If you doubt the love of God, you remember God himself laid down his life. I don't have to seek out love. No matter how many people have betrayed your trust, no matter how many people have let you down, no matter how many people who were supposed to love you failed to love you, you can take this to the bank. Christ laid down his life for you. He's worth it and you are loved. Let's remember. Likewise, Jesus took a cup, the blood of the new covenant, and said, this is my blood poured out for you. The Apostle Paul tells us, as long as we take this, we are declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so, Lord, today we recognize how faithful you've been to us. Help us to be faithful to you. And what that means today is to begin setting up small habits, breaking some bad habits, and putting ourselves in a place to live wisely in the good world that you've created. So we pledge our allegiance to you. And so, Father God, we want to recognize that the very word that you gave us to call upon you is Father. We've been invited to be at your table. We get to be children around your table, and we've been invited in because of the work of the Son, the elder brother. And now we ask that 
You, Father, in the name of Jesus, would send your spirit to convict us, to empower us, to begin making the small changes that we need. We want to be a faithful people. We want to be a wise people. And we want to demonstrate to the world just how good you are. So we lay all of this before you and turn to close in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.